Well, good morning. I thought they said 20 people, not 2,000. So if I pee a little, I'm sorry. But let's start with prayer, okay? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for waking us up. We thank you for the gift of even breathing today. Lord, sometimes we can go through our days and, and forget to be grateful for that simple fact that we get to wake up and to love and to serve and to, to put others first in our life. Lord, help us to open our hearts. Help us to unharden those places that we've sort of put our fist around and we won't let you in. Lord, you love each and every one of us as beloved son. Help us to remember that each and every day of our life. Guide us in our words, our thoughts, our footsteps, and our actions as we draw ourselves, our families, and others closer to you. In your most holy name we pray, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. All right, what an honor it is to be here. Uh, man, I might start crying after that. So <laughs> it's an honor to be with you. My name is John Edwards. I'm from Memphis, Tennessee. I do have a ministry called Pew Ministries. I travel the country, and I'm trying to build life-changing, vibrant ministry to men in parishes all over the country. Over 86% of parishes do not have anything spiritual for men, and we're trying to change that, to build places where men could be real, where they could be authentic, where they could really meet the Lord and have, have people come into their lives that care about them, and then in turn, give that gift back. So that's what we do. We have a podcast called Just a Guy in the Pew. I love doing it with one of my best friends, Victor Adams, and then I get to interview people like Chris Stefanik and folks like that. So it's such a pleasure to be with you. I'm gonna jump into the story because it's a long one and I wanna make sure I get it all in. So like I said, I'm from Memphis, Tennessee. I'm 45 years old, I've lived there my entire life. My mom and dad were from a small town called Bruce, Mississippi. If you know where Ole Miss is in Oxford, it's about 30 minutes south of there. They were high school sweethearts. They moved to Memphis for work because it's one of the biggest cities in the, in the south, obviously. We were raised in Midtown Memphis both of my parents were Baptists, so that's how I grew up. Every day the church was open, I was in it. If you were to go to my parents' house, you could find binders of me and the same kids from the time we were in diapers until we were adults, or until we were 18, kind of adults. <laughs> so, <laughs> probably not in the way we acted most of the time, but we were of age. I went to an Episcopal school. I was never really popular at school because I loved the Lord. I evangelized all the time. I was going to mission trips and vacation Bible schools and all of that, and I loved it so much. I talked about it at school a lot, and it wasn't very popular, even though it was an Episcopal school. The only time I was really popular was during basketball season. <laughs> so got some, got some love there. But I spent all my time in the church. I was there every, time the day, every day the church was open. And it was like that until I was 18 years old. Now, Memphis is sort of a melting pot for SEC schools. Right? You can drive to pretty much all of them within six to eight hours. So a lot of people, after they got, you know, got out of college, they moved to Memphis for work. So a bunch of my friends, they wanted to go to Alabama or Arkansas or Tennessee or Kentucky because their parents did. My mother went to the Mississippi College for Women. Not an option. My dad went to night school. So I just looked up one day and, and I said, you know what, I'll enroll in the University of Memphis. All my friends left. For the first time in my life, I was without community. I was lonely, I was isolated. My dad had looked at me when I was 16, he worked for Napa Auto Parts for 45 years, he retired from there. He looked at me when I was 16, he said, son, it's time to get off the couch and get a job. So he had me start loading trucks in the back of their warehouse in Memphis. 
I was making money and going to school, making money and going to school, and I was lonely. I go to campus every day and just thousands of people and I didn't know anybody. I was trying to talk to girls and I wasn't having much luck, probably because I look like this. <laughs> but, but anyway, I would try to talk to them and there was this one in particular and it's really good it didn't work out because she was one of the school like dance team, but she was like 4'9". So I would have been here this year speaking to you like this if we had wound up being a couple. But I hit on her all the time, she was having none of it. And one day this guy walked in and she just started talking and just talking, talking to him. And I was like, what gives? He's like 5'4", he's not that good looking, you know, all that stuff. And I noticed he had Greek letters on his shirt. And I thought, maybe I ought to get me one of them shirts. <laughs> so, so I headed over, uh, you know, over towards Fraternity Row and I didn't know anybody. Well, it hit me that I had one guy that was still at the University of Memphis. He was three years older than me. He'd helped me along when I went to high school from my Episcopal school. He helped me along at church, all those things. So I called him. His name was Christian. I said, Christian, I'm lonely. Everybody's gone. All I do is work and go to school. He said, well, I'm a rush chairman for Sigma Chi. You know, come out tonight. It's about to be rush season. We were meeting at a bar uh, over by the Highland Strip by the University of Memphis. Come out, see if we like you, you like us, and we'll see if we can make it work. So I show up, I never really drank, did drugs, I played basketball all the time, so I was trying to stay away from a lot of that stuff. But I get into the, uh, get there that night, they like me, I like them. Next thing you know, I've got a bid. That was the last day I went to church for 11 years of my life. I didn't realize I had father wounds. As I said, my dad was born and raised on a farm. He was one of six kids. His parents didn't really love each other. I didn't know that till later in life. So my dad, being raised by him, it was work hard, never complain, put your head down. That's what a man is. You don't need anybody or anything. There were no I love yous. There were no I'm proud of yous. I longed for them my entire life. My dad had a chance to play basketball at Ole Miss. A lot of people thought he'd make it to the NBA, but he got drafted in the Army. So here comes this Goliath of a son, and he starts trying to live vicariously through me, and all I ever heard was what I did wrong. So I didn't know this going into college, but I had father wounds, and I needed affirmation. I had inadequacy wounds, so I wanted this community. So I started looking around the fraternity, and I found a group of people that everybody liked, and I thought, well, what do they do? Well, they did drugs. They slept with women all the time. They drank, you know, binge drinking. So I thought, I'll do that too. I had moved up in my job at Napa. I was making about $35,000 a year by the time I was 20. It was like being rich in college. Right? I could get anything. I could pay for things. So very quickly I had friends, at least I thought, people that wanted money and wanted what I could do for them. So I start hanging around this group, and next thing you know, I'm smoking weed. Then I'm doing LSD, ecstasy, every pill you could think of, Valium, Xanax, all of that, trying to fit in, trying to be liked. I basically bombed out of school. I was going to work, and I was Johnny on the spot at work. But, man, when I wasn't, I was partying. I was over at one of my friend's house on a Sunday afternoon. We were watching the NFL, drinking, smoking weed, all that stuff. Got to be about five or six in the afternoon, and I thought, man, I got to work tomorrow. I need to go home. And I'd been drinking and smoking pot. I got up, and I realized I was a little drunk. So I started walking around the house looking for my buddy, seeing if somebody could drive me home, because Memphis has never been the taxi capital of the world, and there wasn't Uber and Stuber or whatever else is out there now, and Bird scooters, which nobody would want to see me on a bird scooter. It doesn't end well. I've done it once or twice. The bird scooter kind of cries with this big guy on it. But, 
So I go down there. I, I look through the house. I can't find anybody. They're not in the kitchen. They're not on the back porch. I finally walk back by the bedrooms, and the bedroom doors cracked a little bit. And so I open the door, I hear voices, and there's all my friends over a dresser, and there's lines of cocaine. Now, I've never seen cocaine before that. It was always kind of the after-school special thing. If you do that one, you're, you're, you're gone, you're hooked. You can't, you know, you're not going to be able to get away from it. I started to shut the door, and my buddy said, hey, John, like, you've seen this now. We hid it from you because we didn't trust you. But, man, like, if you still want to hang out with us, you know, you should probably take one of these so we could trust you. And he said, and also, it'll wake you up. You can drive home. You know, it's like drinking a cup of coffee. I had a sip of my dad's black coffee when I was four years old, and I've never been back. Right? Like, that's the one vice I've never had in my life. I had a lot of them, but not that one. So I, I gave into that peer pressure, and I bent over the dresser, and I took a line of cocaine. Immediately, I felt like I could run through a wall. I never felt anything like it. I went back to the den. I sat down. I was kind of rocking back and forth and just my eyes going everywhere and just very horrible experience. I finally sobered up a little bit and I drove home. And the whole way home I said, I'll never do this again. Never will I do this. That was dumb. That next Friday I go to another one of the guys' house. Knock on the door. The front door opens. This time it's right there on the coffee table. They weren't hiding it. And I thought I needed to turn around and leave, but I wanted to be liked. I wanted community again. I wanted people to tell me I mattered, which isn't that the desire of all of our souls. I don't care if you're the toughest guy in the room, Navy SEAL, whatever, you want to be seen, loved, and heard. You want to be known. It's the desire of our hearts. So I went in, I sat down, I started doing the drugs. We sat there till about midnight doing them, and then we went down to Beale Street, Memphis's Bourbon Street, rock and roll, all that stuff, went down there and hung out. I said, I'll never do it again. I started making these unholy vows. Well, I'll never do it by myself. I'll never buy it. I'll never blah, 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 blah. Pretty soon I was doing it all the time. I was doing it at home. I was doing it on my own. I had the dealer's number. I was very lonely in my life. It had been forever since I had had a girlfriend or anything. My relationship with Jesus at the time was praying, hey, Jesus, can you send me a girlfriend? Thank you. Or, hey, Jesus, can you do this? Kind of using him as a genie in a bottle, Right? Not going to church at all because the next age up for my youth group was my parents' age. There was no young adult group, so there was nothing there for me. I started moving my way up at work. Before you knew it, I was 24 years old. I was the salesman of the year for a Fortune 250 company making over 200 grand a year. I was very good at my job, but it wasn't very good when you have a drug addiction. I was a chameleon among men. I could be anything to anybody. And guys, again, isn't that the way we live our lives? We put on masks everywhere we go. I'm this guy at the gym and this guy at the bar and this guy at school and this guy at church and this guy with my wife and this guy with my kids, and it's exhausting. Y'all just, we just all want to be who we are in our brokenness and our successes. And so I struggled with all this, and I would pray for the Lord to put somebody in my life. Well, I saw this girl I used to go to college with. I went out to dinner with my parents a couple times, and she was hosting hostessing at this restaurant, and she never spoke to me. I'd call her by her name, and she'd just look at me like, why are you talking to me, weirdo? And I'd go sit down, and, and it made me mad because I was like, I, don't, I never did anything wrong. She used to be a, a girlfriend of one of my, of my buddies. And I said, I, I don't understand it. So we go out on a Friday night, me and some of my buddies, doing our usual thing. I had a pocket full of cocaine. We were at a sports bar. We were going out to hang out before we went to another bar, and this girl comes in, and she says hi to everybody but me which really made me mad. I'm like, I know you see, I'm six foot eight, you see me. 
right? Like, you don't not see me. And so I'm sitting there with my buddies. Most of them decide to go home. They're like, we're going home at 7. And I was like, what gives? I bought all this, these drugs, and we're not going to do them tonight? Well, most of them leave, and I'm sitting there with my two friends that are left, and this girl, another girl that was sitting with the girl I'm speaking about, comes over and says, hey, this girl wants to talk to you. And I was like, what, what, where, where? You know, that never happens. So I'm looking around, and, and I see it. I'm like, Angela, I know her. What does she want? She's like, I don't think she knows you or knows that she knows you. So she goes back over there. Angela looks up. Her eyes will get that big when she figures out who I am. I go sit down by her, and this is how much game I had at the time. What do you want? <laughs> and she goes, hi. And I said, yeah, what do you want? Because I was angry. She hadn't spoken to me all these times. And she goes, I, I didn't realize who you were. You've gotten bigger. You, I had a little bit of hair then, uh, probably a terrible goatee or something. But she didn't recognize me. And we sat down and we started talking. Now, I thought of her as my, as my best friend, one of my best friend's ex-girlfriends. And we know how that is, right? Off limits. I was just sitting there wondering why she was wanting to talk to me. So all of a sudden, my two buddies come over and they're about to leave and go to another bar. His name was Spanky. He was a little short guy. We used to call him Spanky. So he came up and goes, hey, we're leaving and going to the bar. I said, all right, I'll go with you. And he goes, no, you need to stay. I said, why would I stay? I'm going to go with you. You need to stay. Why would I stay? I'm going to go with you. I have the drugs. You're going to want them. And all of a sudden, he goes, you need to stay. And I said, what's wrong with your neck? <laughs> and so he kept on. And finally, I look over to Angela, and she's got these puppy dog eyes. I was like, you want me to stay? And she goes, yeah. And I go, oh, oh, oh. And all the stuff with my buddy running through my head and all that. We had a wonderful night that night. I stayed there with her. I asked her out. The next night we started dating and we were married a year later. Now along the way, she tells me that the guy I'm going to marry is going to be Catholic. So I thought I'd chivalrously give up my faith I didn't practice anymore for hers. So I went right down to the RCIA, RCIA class and I signed right up. Never cared about being Catholic, never took it seriously. Went 11 years of my life before ever taking it seriously. So Angela and I, we start dating, we decide we're going to get married. This whole time I'm doing drugs, just enough to get the feeling without her being able to tell what's going on in my life. We get married, and this is the thing, fellas. I've told this story a thousand times that it hurts each time. I wanted to tell her the truth of my life, but I was afraid I would lose her. And so as we go to our marriage to get married, I was doing cocaine until 7 in the morning the night before I got married. I show up, we get married, I'm working, making all this money, things are good. She comes to me and she says, I'm pregnant. I said, awesome, I want to be a dad so bad and, and, I, and I hope it's a boy because I don't know what to do with a girl. And if it is a boy, I'm going to do all the things my dad never did because dad would show me how to play basketball, but he wouldn't play with me. Dad was always so busy working and all of these things. And I said, I'm going to be the best dad in the world, I'm going to love that kid. That kid's going to be so smothered, it's not going to be funny. But then I started thinking, I've been doing drugs. And I haven't told her. And that happened when we were conceiving. And what if he comes out and he's not healthy? And I wanted to tell her, but I was a coward. And that's what, guys, we're so innately selfish. Like it's all about us. People say, what's the hardest thing about being married? You're about to realize how selfish you are. It's the first, time I tell, it's the first thing I tell anybody. But we're so innately selfish. And then when you throw addictions in there, it makes it a billion times worse. So Jacob's born, I'm happy to tell you, he's healthy as a horse. He's 14 years old. He just got confirmed two Fridays ago. He's just the joy of my life. Thank you. 
Thank you. So um, Jacob's born, and I start playing with him and all those things, but then work happens and commissioned and driven by money, and that's where my life was. I needed the money to fuel my drug habits, my lifestyle. I bought into the narrative that men, it was about what you drove and the house you had, how much money and the, the, the jobs you got and all those things made you worth something, trying to fill a hole that nothing could fill but God. And so Jacob was healthy and things were going fine. And then my mother calls me one day. My mother contracted breast cancer about four years before this. But she always beat it back. My mother was tough. Again, I was selfish. I never spent much time at her doctor's appointments. My sisters did that. I have a younger and an older. They would always inform me. And I'd say, okay, everything's all right. Well, one day they had started moving back down to Mississippi. They were building a retirement home. And I just remembered as I was making sales call in my territory, sales calls in my territory of Mississippi that my mother was in Memphis at her, the West Clinic, the cancer clinic. I thought, you know what, I haven't seen her in a while. I'm always so busy and I don't feel like stopping what I'm doing to go and be with her. I would run off right after Christmas, run off right after Thanksgiving, had to get back to my drugs and the party. And so I pull up at the West Clinic and I'm thinking, awesome, like, they're probably still here. That looks like their car. And so I go inside and I said, I'm John Edwards. My mother should be here. Yeah, she's in the back. So I go and I open the door and my mother and my father are sitting there. And my mother says to me, I said, mom, hey. And she goes, John, what are you doing here? This is such a good surprise. I'm so glad you're here. It's so good to see you. And my father did his usual emotional stuff, son. (laughs) Yeah, that kind of thing. So I start talking to my mom, and all of a sudden the doctor walks in, and she goes, you must be John. I've heard a lot about you. She says, I'm sorry that we have to meet under these circumstances. Then she turned, and she looked at my mother, and she said, "Miss Edwards, I'm so sorry, but she had had heart trouble. She was getting tired, and they thought it was because of the chemo. She went to the heart doctor, and no, she had three blockages in her heart. So she had to make the choice, like, either I have a heart attack, I stay on chemo and have a heart attack, or I have the heart surgery and get off chemo. Well, she had made the latter decision to have the heart surgery. And when she did that, the cancer spread. The, ner- the, the doctor said, Miss Edwards, I'm so sorry. The cancer's moved from your breast into your lymph nodes, into your lungs, and into your brain. And you have anywhere between two months, and, uh, two weeks and two months to live. First time I ever saw my father cry, didn't know how to handle that. My mother just kind of looked up and said, all right, we're going to go. Thank you so much. And she was so peaceful. I didn't know what to do. And they said, follow us back to our house in Midtown. They still had it. They were in the process of, of moving down to this house that was being built or had been built. So I followed them over there, crying the whole way over there, regretting how much I had chosen myself over my mother. I pull up to the house, and they're in the driveway, and my dad gets out and storms in the house to go get clothes for the weekend. They decided they were going to go down to the farm and sort it out. So I go to the Crown Vic door of my mother's car. She was on the pasture side. I opened the door, and all 6'8", 270 pounds of me fell into her lap. And I started to sob, and I started to cry, and I said, Mom, I don't want you to die. This isn't fair. This isn't right. I need more time. Jacob doesn't. Jacob's never going to know you. He's not even a year old. He's not going to remember you. I, 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 I. She just found out she was going to die, and all I could think about was myself. 
And so I, I sit there, and my mother used to rub my head all the time. It's probably why I'm bald. I think she rubbed all my hair off. She used to call me her cuddly duckling. Don't repeat. Y'all are recording this, aren't you? Don't, don't, don't repeat that. I don't want to lose my Viking kind of ness for that. So I'm sitting there in the driveway, and, and I'm laying in her lap. I said, Mom, I don't want you to die. This isn't fair. This isn't fair. And she said, John, I know Jesus. And I've known him my whole life, and I love him. And everything's going to be all right. And I said, I, I don't want to hear that. It's not going to be all right. Well, my dad kept coming out. He came out of the house, and I thought, I don't want any part of that. So I got up, and I shut the door. And I started to shut the door. I said, Mom, what do you want me to do? What do I do? She goes, would you please call your sisters? And that was the hardest thing I ever had to do in my life, was to call my sisters and tell them their mother was going to die. And so they pull out of the driveway, and I remember we had this, this cinder block porch and this kind of sloping driveway, and I walked right over to it. It was about eye level, and I kicked it as hard as I could, which wasn't very smart. It was much harder than my foot. But I remember just looking up at the sky and saying, God, I hate you. I hate you. If this is the type God you are, and you're going to take this woman who has served you so impeccably, who has loved you so well, who has put so many other people in front of her, and you're going to leave a scumbag, lying drug addict like me alive, I'll never worship you again. I hate you. I started dropping F-bombs. I was calling him everything I could think of, and I meant every word of it. I got home and told my wife we had a cry. Shortly after that, my mother died. I was in the room when she died, and if you don't think people have a soul, you've never seen anybody die. Because she was looking right at me. I had walked out of the room to get a bottle of water, and she had this gleam in her eye, and I turned the corner, and it was gone. I went off the rails after that. I didn't care. As a man, I've been told, put, shove your feelings down. Just put your head down and be a man. So the only time that I ever, I ever let my emotions come out was when I was in the shower in the morning. I'd turn on music real loud, pound the shower and get it out and go be Johnny on the spot all day long until I came home to my family and took it out on them. Angela comes to me shortly after this and, and she says, John, I'm pregnant. I didn't really expect that because we had become like ships passing in the night. I had a perfect excuse. She thought I was just drinking and not, not knowing how to deal with my mother's death. Behind her back, I was doing 40 or $50 worth of cocaine a night and drinking 20 or 30 beers a night. So she comes to me and tells me I'm pregnant. And I said, oh, great, awesome. And then I thought, I've been doing more drugs and drinking than I ever have. What if something happens? And I wanted to tell her the truth. I thought marriage would make me come out of my mistakes, would make me grow up, that life would just happen to me. Right, that Jacob would change my life and it didn't. And now here's the birth of my identical twins. So Angela calls me one day, I'm with Jacob at the zoo trying to be a good dad for 30 minutes before I went to do what I wanted to do. And Angela calls me, she works at St. Jude's Children's Hospital and she was gonna sneak down to the, uh, to the ultrasound lab and get a sneak peek. So she calls me and she goes, John, I have news, there's two heartbeats. I said, yeah, yours and the baby's. She goes, no, that'd be three. And I think my response was, do you know how much daycare is going to be? <laughs> Not the thing to say to your wife when she's telling you she's pregnant with twins. So I go home. We have a good cry. I profusely apologize. And I wanted to tell her again. Because Angela was 36 and her aunt had just had a stroke. And she was a little bit younger than that. But her aunt had just had a stroke. 
And so she got checked for the same disorder, and she had it. So it was a high-risk pregnancy, twins, and she had to go to the doctor every single week. And I wanted to tell her the truth, but I was afraid she'd leave. I'm happy to tell you that I have identical twin, red-haired, blue-eyed girls that are 11. Unfortunately, they look like me. They're going to have a hard life. But beyond that, they're perfectly healthy by the grace of God. And so, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That would have been really awkward if you didn't clap, so thank you for that. Um, Anyway, a little humor in the midst of this gut-wrenching story. So, the kids are born, they're healthy. I pick up a huge customer at work. Uh, they're spending, you know, $300,000 a month with me. It's all about money. They're wearing me out. They came from nothing and forgot that and they were demanding all hours of the night. The stuff they sent me, I, I can't share at a men's conference, but it kept me up all the time and it just kept fueling the drugs and the alcohol. Angela and I had become like ships passing in the night. She'd go to bed with the kids and I'd sit up till 2 in the morning watching some baseball replay on ESPN I didn't care about in case she came up front and saw me doing drugs and drinking. I adopted another addiction at the time, pornography, because as I said, we were not intimate. So every single night I would do drugs, drink, sit up till 2 in the morning, watch porn and go to bed. So I'm sitting there one night and it was about 2 and I said, I'm going to go to bed. Did all the things I just mentioned. I go back to my bed, I lay down, and if you've never do, done cocaine, even if you do a little bit around bedtime, it's like somebody takes toothpicks and sticks them in your eyes. You can't go to sleep. It's the worst part of it. You cannot go to sleep. And so I was laying down, preparing for another three hours of tossing and turning the bed before I had to go to work and act like I'd slept all night. All of a sudden, as I'm laying in bed, I fall asleep in about five minutes. But I awake in about 10 minutes, and my heart's doing this. And I sat up in the bed and I thought, no, 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 this is it, this is it, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And I fall out of the bed and we, we had carpet, I landed on all fours and I had the wherewithal to look at Angela to see if she'd have woken up and she hadn't. So I crawled to the bathroom, I pulled myself on the commode and I said, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I need to tell Angela, I need her to tell her to call an ambulance. But I was like, if, they, if she does, they're going to take my blood, she's going to find out, she's going to take me, she'll take everything. And it was probably the money, the house, the car, the kids, her, in that order. So I sit there and I think, I'd rather die here on this floor than tell her the truth. I was such a coward. And so I grabbed this towel that was in front of me and I shove it in my face. I said, at least I'll die quietly. And I noticed I was having a panic attack. So my, my, my breathing slowed. I finally got back in bed. I went to sleep, and I said, I'll never do this again. I got up the next morning, threw all the drugs out. I was back buying them at 4.30 the next day. Same thing. Sitting there all night, baseball, whatever was on, porn, go to bed. Same thing happens again. Five minutes of sleep, sit up, my heart's doing this. Fall out of bed, same scenario. She's dead asleep. I crawl in the bathroom, and I thought I wanted to call out to God, but I hated him. And I didn't want to give him the satisfaction. So instead, I grabbed a towel again and started to slow my breathing. And I thought, this is two strikes. I don't know if I'll have another one. Now, I barely went to mass. I was angry about being Catholic and giving up my own faith. I didn't believe in any of it. And most of the time, I was too hungover to go. But 11 years prior, I'd gone to RCIA. And I remembered you could go to confession. I'd only done it once. And I sat there and I said, you know what? All I want to do is tell somebody the truth of my life. That's the worst part of being an addict. People go, is it the withdrawal? No, it's the lying. 
It's never remember what you tell anybody. Living your whole life when somebody goes, hey, you remember when you, what? What did I say? If I say something wrong, they're going to they're gonna pull a card and the whole house of cards is going to come down. Everybody will know. Everybody will know. And so I was so afraid. And I thought, you know, what I want to do is tell the truth. And my father-in-law was uber Catholic. Every year he asked me to go to this men's conference that I vehemently denied and found ways to get out of, except for 2011, I had gone once and Father Larry Richards was speaking. And he came out on the stage and I'm like, I'm so hungover and I don't want to be here. And he's like, if you're not living as the husband and father you're supposed to be, you need to look between your legs because there's nothing there. And I'm like, who is this guy? Like, they pay, is he not going to get in trouble? The bishop, did you hear that? You know, it's like, and so... He gave me a book, said, you know, here's be a man, read it. Be a saint or go to hell, you know, that thing. So, you know, he's like, <laughs> I love mimicking him. Get it, got it, going to do it. May each of you know his love now and forever. So anyway, I read some of the book. I go home, I underline the first three pages, going to change my life from that 2011 men's conference. And I was doing drugs two hours later. So here I am sitting on the commode at 2016. And I thought, you know what, that conference is this weekend, and they always have 40 priests there here in confession. I'm going to go, and I'm at least going to tell somebody the joy of my life. I'll stop feeling so stressed out. Maybe I can stop. So I go. I don't remember who was speaking, but confession happens, and we always have like 40 priests. It's a certain time of day. And so I start doing the walk of shame down the hallway. Nope, I know him. Nope, I know him. Nope, I know him. Nope, I know him. Finally, I run into one from Batesville, Mississippi. I don't even know why he was there, but he was. So I pick door number 40 and I walk in and there's this heavy set priest and he's looking right at me and he looks angry. It looks like he don't want to be there. He's probably just heard 30,000 confessions. And here I come in and I was like, man, I wish I picked door number two, door number seven, door 23. And I sit down and he goes, begin. I said, begin. He goes, begin. Begin. Do you not know what you're doing? No, sir, I don't. I've done this once. And I was like, man, this is off to a fetching start. This is going to be fantastic. I said, I don't know what I'm doing. And he goes, repeat after me. Next thing you know, I start unleashing everything I've done wrong in my life. I thought I was just going to go in there and throw a couple things out, feel better, and go back to my business. But I was telling him things I did when I was four years old. And everything started coming at me. I was crying. He looked like he was getting hit with body shots left and right. He's just like... And so we come to the end of it, and I said, I just want to be the husband and father I should have always been. I just want to be the man I should have been. My wife and kids don't deserve the person I've been, and I just want to change my life, but I don't want to get in trouble. And when I said that, he lost it. What do you mean you don't want to get in trouble? It's not about you. You want the mercy of Jesus. You don't get to tell them how it's delivered to you. I'm like, all right, man, I'm crying. I can't cry anymore. Stop yelling at me. Right? Like Jesus was much nicer than you the first time I did this. And so... The next thing you know, he gives me absolution. He looks like he needed a doctor. I start walking out. I go home, and for the first time in forever, I felt the Holy Spirit in my life. I go home, I pour out the beer, pour out the drugs, and I made it four days. The next week was Holy Week. I'd been working with a garage in Mississippi. I'd helped them for 20 years and moved them from a shop that had nothing to now one of the most technologically advanced and triple the size shops in, in Mississippi. And they were ordering equipment for that process. They were about to order lifts and scan tools. It was like $400,000 worth of equipment. And I'd put a bid on it. And they called me on Holy Thursday and said, John, you win. Come get the invoice. You know, bring us the invoice. We'll sign it. 
So I hauled tail down to Hernando, Mississippi. They signed the invoice. I started heading up 55 back into Memphis. And I'm like, I just want to celebrate. For me, that meant drinking and doing drugs. So I start calling the dealer. I call him about 30 times. He doesn't answer. I'm supposed to be picking up my son Jacob from uh, my father-in-law's in Germantown, a suburb on the east side of Memphis. I get all the way out there. I get off the interstate. The dealer calls back. Come on, man. I was asleep. Come on back. I turn the car around, I run back down there. He lived right across from Elvis Presley's Graceland. It's not a nice part of town anymore, by the way. So I pull in, I run in, I get my 40 bucks, I get my little Ford Edge, I look down, my, my gas tank's on zero. And I thought, man, I don't want to run a gas out of here, over here. So I drive to the four-way stop, take a left, go down the street, pull in the gas station, coast to a gas tank, and went, whoo, man, I made it. All of a sudden I heard, whoop, whoop. I look in the rearview mirror and the DEA's behind me. They pull me out of the car. I'm in my full nappy uniform. They find the coke in my pants. They throw me in the back of a police car. They take me downtown, sliding from one side to the other in a Tahoe, chain me to a bench, tell me that I'm going to jail, all this stuff. And it's three hours go by. I'm, I'm thinking my wife doesn't know where I am. I never told her. You know, I, I didn't have a chance to call her. I didn't show up to get Jacob. But I kept saying, I'm going to get out of this. I'm a salesman. I get out of everything. All of a sudden, two police officers come in, a young African-American and a white guy, and they grab me and said, we're going downtown to 201 Poplar. That's the address of the jail. One of the most dangerous jails in the United States, because Memphis is one of the most dangerous cities in the United States. I'd never been in trouble in my life. So I'm sitting in this police car, and we're waiting in this line to go in and get dropped off, and they're mad because they were about to get off work, and now they got to sit in this line for however long it's going to take. And they're arguing with each other, and I'm sitting in the back just thinking, I've ruined my life, I've ruined my life, I've ruined my life. And all of a sudden, one of the cops looks in the rearview mirror and he goes, man, you don't ever look like you've been in trouble in your life. What's your deal? I said, I hadn't. I got addicted in college. I messed up. All I want to do is just call my wife. I want to tell her I'm okay. And he goes, well, we're not going anywhere thanks to you. You know, we're stuck here. Your phone's in the trunk. I'll get it out and I'll call her for you. I can't uncuff you. And I said, I don't know what I'll tell her. I don't know what I would say. And he goes, I'll never forget seeing his eyes in that rearview mirror. He goes, is this about you or is it about her? My whole life had been about me. I said, get the phone and call her. So he calls her. She answers the phone. John, 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 are you okay? Are you okay? I said, Angela, I'm in the back of a police car headed into jail in downtown Memphis on a possession of felony charge of cocaine. And she said, I hate you. And she hung up the phone. She knew something had been going on. She finally had her answer. And as bad as I felt about that, I was worried about what was fixing to happen to me. So I start thinking about jail. They take me in. They take all my stuff. I sit in the drunk tank till about four in the morning. Within a couple of minutes, I see another inmate stab another guy. I see a bailiff beat him within an inch of his life. And I'm just sitting there scared to death. Four in the morning rolls around. They give me the mug shots, the law and order deal. And that's when it started hitting me. I'm not getting out of this. People are going to know. They're not going to come in here and go, hey, sorry, we, we really want to let you go home. That wasn't going to happen. So they lead me back to this place and they give me one more phone call. I call Angela again and she says, don't call me again. I've got to get the kids to work. I've got to get the kids to school and to work because you're not here. So all of a sudden, they take me over to this place where you get your scrubs and all that stuff and toilet paper and basically two of everything. They said, give us your shoes. I wear a size 16 shoe. I can't find shoes in a department store. So I was sitting there going, what are you going to do with that? And they popped up some size 16 Crocs. All right, I should have shopped here a long time ago. 
Don't go to jail for your clothing apparel, all right? Not a good idea. But they give me those shoes. I walk down to the, to the cell. I'm going down the cell block, and I'm praying. Just put me in one by myself. I'm exhausted. I hadn't slept in 24 hours. I hadn't eaten. Get in front of this cell door. It opens up. They tell you to turn around. You're holding everything you can have in your life. And I watched that door just do, 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 boom. And I thought, this is it. My life's over. For the first time since I was a kid, I can't go anywhere. I, if I want to go to the bathroom, it's in front of God and everybody. I looked at these disgusting mattresses. Thank God I was by myself. I threw a blanket down. I laid down face first, pulled the blanket over my head, and I passed out. I woke up a few hours later on Good Friday morning. I thought I was at home. I was under the sheets, and I thought, man, what a nightmare. I'll never do that again until I sat up and my head hit the bottom of a steel bunk bed. I threw my legs over the side. The center block wall was this close. First time in my life I ever figured out I was claustrophobic. I started rubbing my arms and going, no, 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 no. This is it. This is it. This is it. I'm going to lose everything. I'm going to lose everything. Everybody's going to know. I'm going to lose Angel and the kids and my job and the house and money and everything. And I'm sad to say that I, I contemplated taking my life. I looked around for a while and I couldn't find anything by the grace of God. And I sat there and as I was shaking and going nuts and flipping out and just panicking, all of a sudden this weird peace came over me. And all of a sudden out of my own voice, I just remember hearing, at least now I don't have to lie anymore. At least now everybody will know who I am. And it was like the weight of the world fell off of me. All of a sudden I started thinking, how did I get here? How did I let this happen? And pretty soon Jesus showed up. And he said, John, it was the day that you walked away from me, the day you quit going to church, the day that I was no longer a part of your life. And I hit my knees. And I just said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I've blamed you for so many things that weren't your fault. And I've been a terrible person. And, and I've said all these things. And all I want is just to be the husband and father. And if I should have been. And if you'll give me that opportunity, I promise you I won't mess it up. I don't know if my life is worth anything. But if you want it, take it. It's yours. I haven't done anything with it. And I sat there and shortly the bailiff came and she said, you can make a phone call or take a shower. I'd seen a lot of prison movies. I said, I'll take the, I'll take the phone call, right? So I go and I call everybody I know. Nobody answers the phone. It was the loneliest I ever felt in my life. All those brothers for life I spent thousands of dollars on, not a single person answered the phone until my older sister did at my dad's farm. She said, John, we know where you are. Angel's across the street trying to bail you out, which I didn't believe because she's Irish, Italian, and she means what she says. And so she says, I'm going to come get you tonight. Angel's not going to let you come home except to get clothes. She'll be at her parents' house with the kids. So I go back in the jail cell, and I sat there, and the Lord started showing me everything I had done when I was young and all the people that he had used me to help and the joy I had in my life. I'd been searching for joy in everything else and came up empty to the point of being in a jail cell, almost losing everything in my life. And so we had this beautiful day. I sat in that jail cell, almost like the church does on Holy Saturday, right, just in silence with the Lord. And so shortly the bailiff comes and she says, you got visitors. So I go down, it's the law and order scene with the glass and the payphone. It's my wife and my mother-in-law, and they're both crying, I'm crying. My mother-in-law is probably crying, tears of joy, they got them. Don't let them out of here, right? They, 
Hey, they say that Peter never forgave uh, Jesus for healing his mother-in-law, just saying. So, so I'm sitting there crying, and Angela, I go to start to explain, right, because that's what I do as a salesman. I'm explaining, explaining, explaining. All of a sudden, she puts her hand up. She goes, stop. I'm not going to divorce you, but it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with the vows I made to God in the church that day. All I heard was, I'm not going to divorce you. She said, you can't come home. You'll get out tonight on Good Friday at 9 o'clock or so. I don't know when I could talk to you, but I got to go, and she leaves. So I go back to the cell. It comes to be 9 o'clock. I go get my phone. Apparently, there's a magazine in Memphis called Just Busted, and yours truly made the cover. So my work found out. I had 20 missed calls from my boss, the number one salesman in the company. I'm walking outside looking for my sister, and when I look up, it isn't my sister. It's my father. My father was six foot, 78 years old, overweight, and obviously I look like I do, but I felt like a six-year-old kid that had broken something in the house, and it was time to pay up. And so I start walking to him, and he comes off the back of that car like he's 30 years old, and I just said, all right, just stand here and take it. And he grabbed me by the shirt, and I just thought, just sit here, you deserve it. And he pulled me to him, and he said, John, I love you. It was the first time my father ever told me he loved me in my life. He didn't say he was proud of me, but that was understandable. <laughs> so we get in the car. We drive to my house. I walk in. I get clothes. I'm crying because I have these almost ghostly images of my children and how many times I'd walk by them, and all I wanted was just to hold them. I hadn't seen them in four days. We get in the car. We drive down to Bruce. It's about a two-hour drive. My dad starts talking about my mother's death, which I didn't expect. He says, son, is this my fault? Was I a bad dad? Is this because of me? And I said, Dad, you weren't always the dad I wanted, but you still wear a cape in my eyes. I'm a grown man. I made my own choices. So we get down to Bruce, and I'm sitting there on Saturday, and, and, and I knew that Angela's big Italian family would be getting together for Easter, and I just felt horrible because when she walked into the kitchen that should have five people in it but probably had 300, that she would hear this silence and then be the gorilla in the room. And it was so overwhelming now, Bruce, Mississippi has a Catholic room, not a church. St. Luke's like Catholic room. It's a small town. It's mostly Protestant. So they had a priest that traveled four or five. And about five years before, Angel said, if we go to your dad's for Christmas, we got to go to Mass. So whatever, whatever it takes to go down there. So I went to this little church. I'd seen this priest, never met him, never talked to him, went in, went out. So I had this overwhelming desire on Saturday to go to Mass for the first time in my life. It's like I just want to be near Jesus. So I go in the morning, I borrow my dad's truck, I'm driving, or car, I drive over to this little church, nobody's there. And I'm thinking, you got to be kidding me, God. First time I want to go to Mass in my life and you're not here? All of a sudden this nun pulled in who had been there the one time I went, and I was banging the steering wheel, I was mad and crying, and she was like, what's the matter with you? I was like, I didn't want to go to Mass. You know, she probably thought I was nuts. She said, son, there's too many people. We're down the road in the 4-H club, do you know where that is? I said, Yeah. So I drive down there, I go in, the place is packed, all these families, it was very hard. In walks this priest, and he gives this same priest from years before. I recognized him. He gave a beautiful mass. I get up to leave because they were having a potluck, and I didn't want to stay in there. It hurt too much. I get to the door, and all of a sudden I feel a tap on my shoulder, and I'm like, who's grabbing me? I don't know anybody in here. And I turn around, it's this priest. And he says, hello, John. I never told that man my name. He said, I don't know why you're here and what you're doing here by yourself or where your family is, but God wants me to tell you everything's going to be all right. 
And then he turned and he walked into the crowd. I could see clear across any room, and I don't know where he went or anything. I went in the car and I sat there and said, Lord, what just happened? But I realized he was going to let me change my life. Seemed like it. So I drive to Memphis the next morning. I go to court. I, you know, I plead guilty. I'm on probation, all those things. I go to my job, and they've flown in everybody. I'm getting peppered with questions, and I stood up in the middle of it and said, I got to go. They said, what do you mean? You can lose your job. I said, I've never been in trouble. I've made y'all tons of money. I've made tons of money. If you're going to fire me, I can't do anything about it. But I'm going to go check myself into rehab because I don't want to lose my family. And I got up and I walked out of that room. My dad drives me down to the rehab place that I used to see commercials during the Three Stooges and stuff during the day and thought, I'll never be there. And here I was right at the door. I go in and these families are throwing their kids in there left and right. They, they stole the car. They set the house on fire. They took all of our money. Take them. They're your problem. Guys that were bleeding, scratching their arms because they were all on meth and thought there were bugs on them. And I'm sitting there and there's a newspaper by me and I just pick it up because the door where they're coming in is right on my shoulder and I don't want to see anymore. All of a sudden the door opens, nobody walks by and it's my wife. I hadn't talked to her since Good Friday. I said, Angela, what are you doing here? And she said, I can't let you go through this alone. She sat there with me. She is the angel of my life. There are two heroes to this story, and I am not one of them, Jesus and my wife. So she goes with me back in the assessment room. Thank you. Thank you. So I go back in the assessment room, and the lady's like, he needs 30-day outpatients. And my wife's like, no, do you, do you still have the probes? Is there waterboarding, anything in the basement? Like, I want you to get all those, get the devil out of them. You know, all that stuff. I was like, the lady's got things on the wall. She seems learned. Let's just trust her advice. So I walk outside looking for my dad, and I felt horrible because he was going to have to drive me to and fro basically four hours a day for 30 days. I was off work. Work said I couldn't come back. I'm looking for my dad. He's gone. And Angela goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm looking for dad. She goes, I'm not going to make him drive up here like that. You're going to come home. Allison, my three-year-old daughter, one of my twins, had asked if I was dead. So I go home and I hit the door and they just hit me and it's like WrestleMania for five hours. I couldn't let go of them. I was crying. It just, man, it was amazing. And so finally, Angela takes him, goes to bed and I go back to bed and I'm all fat and happy because I, you know, I can go to the bathroom in private. There's air conditioning and I'm not eating pig slop. I'm laying in my bed and I'm all fat and happy and then I thought, I looked over and my wife wasn't next to me. She was sleeping in Jacob's room because she couldn't be near me. And I could see the shape of her. I used to say lump. She said, please change that to shape. So the shape of her under the covers. And I thought, what are you smiling at, you idiot? Like, what are you smiling at? So maybe you could stop binge drinking. Maybe you could stop doing cocaine, but you're still a jerk. And so I felt this need to be around Christ and I went to to open the bedside table next to me looking for a Bible. I should have looked on her side. There were probably 40. But I grabbed this Father Larry's book that's sitting in the same place I left it five years before. I read that, co- that book from cover to cover that night. Father Larry's now the chaplain of the, my ministry, and he's one of my best friends in the world. I started reading his book, and it showed me what it meant to be a man. Angela got up at 5 in the morning. The next morning, she goes, what are you doing up? I said, I never went to sleep. I know I need to be different, and this book's showing me how. I read 40 Catholic books that first year. I was sitting in my church one day. I was driving. This was still in that same period. I was driving my father-in-law's Tahoe, dropping my kids off at school because my car was in the impound lot, and the world found out. All my customers 
bleepity bleep you, I'll never buy from you again, you cokehead loser, and the world was crashing in on me. This is the Eucharistic part of my story. I wanted to hide from the world, and I saw the pastor of my parish, who I didn't know hardly at all, other than in name, walking across the parking lot, and I knew he was going to 815 Mass. And I thought, you know what, nobody ever looked for me in there, because I never went to Mass. So I go in, I felt like a hypocrite, I'm on the Joseph side of the church, I'm in the front row like an idiot, and I'm sitting there, and Father, he processes in with just him, no deacons, no lectors, anything, and he starts preaching, he starts reading the word, all those things, and every bit of it is speaking to me. I start crying, then I start crying harder, then it's full-on waterworks in there, sobbing. I'm thinking somebody's going to come take me to mass jail, I'm making too much noise. And I'm sitting there, and I'm sobbing and sobbing, and finally it's time for communion, and he looks at me, and he waves at me and says, come on, and I was petrified, I was like, I don't want to move, uh-uh. And he kept waving at me. I said, no. And he goes, John. I didn't even know he knew my name. John, come. And so I get up. I was holding up all the people behind me. And I walk up, and I'm just trembling like this. It just, and, and he looks at me. He says, this is the body of Christ. And he laid it in my hands, and it was like lightning shot all over my body. It was the first time in my life I ever believed it was him. I walked over, partook in the blood. I went, and I prayed. And I prayed so hard, I can't even tell you what I prayed, but mass was over. Next thing you know, there's a tap on my shoulder. It's Father Martell. He said, John, what are you doing here? Which was a valid question. He said, follow me when he saw me crying. And we started tracking towards the confessional. And I thought, I don't want to go in there. Last time I went there, I got arrested. (laughs) And so we go in. I tell him everything. He won't let me beat myself up. And as we were ending uh, confession, he said to me, where do you think you're going? I was getting up to leave. And I said, I've only done this once, but I think this is where I'm supposed to leave. He says, sit down. I didn't have anybody read, and you're off for the next 30 days, so you're going to be a lector, and I'm going to show you how to do that. You're going to come to 815 Mass until I tell you any different, and you're going to come to confession every Friday until I tell you any different. That man saved my life. He's like a grandfather to my children. He's at my house all the time. I love him like a father. He came to me. He goes, John, you could probably help other men. I said, nope, nope. Nobody knows. Father hadn't told anybody. That men's conference came around. It had been a year. I'd made friends in my life. Nobody knew. I got involved in the parish, but I was embarrassed to tell anybody. So I go to this men's conference. Father Mike Schmitz was speaking before he was Father Mike Schmitz. And so I go there, beautiful day. I go to my parish that night. We're having a fundraiser because that priest I was telling you about loves sports. We're doing a three-point shootout. There was another man from my parish there, and he'd been to confession for the first time in 20 years. And he was running around the gym going, whoa, and he's telling everybody all of his sins. Every one of them. There were women and children there, and I finally grabbed them like, hey, man, ixnay on the shower, hey, dude, there's wife and kids in here. Like, you can't do this. And he goes, I don't know why I feel this way. I feel amazing. I've never felt like this before. And I go, dude, I heard you say you went to confession for the first time in 20 years. You've, you've been touched by the Holy Spirit. He goes, I'm cradle Catholic. I know God and I know Jesus. I don't know anything about the Holy Spirit. Tell me. And so I start to tell him, and the devil hit me in the back of the head. He's like, what are you doing, you cokehead, you loser, really, you hypocrite, you're going to tell somebody about Jesus? So I said, hey, go talk to one of the priests, I'm sure they'll set up time with you. He goes, no, man, you speak in an everyday way and I understand you and please. And he was a salesman too, he wouldn't take no for an answer. So he kept following me around, I said, fine, fine. He goes, let me take you to pizza Tuesday night. So I go home and tell my wife, who we're not healed, that I'm going to go tell somebody about the Holy Spirit over pizza Tuesday night. You can imagine her reaction, okay. So we go and we get pizza, 
And I looked like a lawyer. I sat down that Sunday, I went to Mass, I said, Lord, if you want me to do this, you gotta do it for me. I read the Bible five times before I was 15. All this stuff started flowing out of me that I thought I'd forgotten. I'm like, I'm like sit down when he sits. And I just start ripping on the Holy Spirit. And I get through and he's like, man, that's amazing. You should start a men's group. Nope, nope. I told you I'd do this. End of transaction. I'll get the check. See you never. Right? He wouldn't take no. He goes, why do you always do that? Finally, I felt convicted by the Holy Spirit. And I said, Jay, I was arrested on a felony charge of cocaine a year ago. I'm not your guy. He goes, wow, that's amazing. You should start a men's group. And I was like, maybe we should drug test you, right? So we start talking. He's like, we're all broken, man, and you know our parish. We just have the men's club where we get drunk and raise money, you know, or we do service stuff, but we don't have anything spiritual for men. He goes, let's, let's just call some men together. So the next week we call 30 men together, and I know I'm going to have to tell them everything I've told you and more. And I walk to that room, I got to open the door, and the devil shows up again. Don't do it. You're going to embarrass your wife. They're going to kick your kids out of the school. They're not going to let you go here anymore. Think about all the pain you've put them through already, and everybody's going to know. And I let go of the door, and I walk three steps away. And then I heard what you can only hear about in the Old Testament, that God was in the whisper. He was in the earthquake and the storms and the fires. He was in the whisper. And he said, John, you told me when you walked out of that cell you'd be different. Turn around and open the door. So I did. I turned around and walked in. All these guys like, what are we doing here? Because we didn't tell them. Where's the beer? You know, all that stuff. So I go, look, guys, we've got a great men's club. We raise money. We do all this stuff, but we never talk about Jesus. And let me tell you what can happen in your life when that's the case. And I went, blah. And I told every one of them, I was ugly, snot crying. I was freaking out. I thought everybody was going to get up and leave. And finally I said, look, I know you didn't know why you were here. And this is an entrapment. If you want to go, go. But Father says I could start something for men. I don't know what the hell I'm doing, but I'll try to figure it out. Next thing you know, the guy who asked me to do it got up, and I thought, surely you're not leaving. You got me into this. <laughs> and I looked up, and he was crying. And he said, I'm a terrible husband and father. I care more about my job and money than I do my wife and kids. The second guy got up when he sat down, and he goes, y'all think I got this great marriage. But my wife, she left me three weeks ago. I'm addicted to porn. She's had enough, and she's gone. I got the papers today. The next guy stood up and he goes, y'all know I've got nine kids and he was wobbling. And I was like, you all right? And he goes, no, I'm drunk. My wife and I fight. When we fight, I escape. I've been in a hotel room in downtown Memphis. I've had a case of beer today. My wife thinks I'm at work. Work thinks I'm at home. And I just came up here because all we ever do is men is drink and I was tired of drinking alone. Every man in that room stood up like pistons in an engine that day and talked about how broken they were. And my brothers, that's the day that God showed me the power of vulnerability to man's life. St. Paul, thank you. Thank you. St. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, he's lamenting about a spiritual thorn in his side. He's begging God to remove it, and God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That verse, for the first time in my life, made sense. Fellas, I know I'm not alone in this, but most of us have been raised to put your head down and to work hard and never complain, never have a feelings, never have emotions. If you do, you're not a man. You're supposed to be a one-man army, and if you can't do it, you're not a man. You're a failure. That is garbage. That is garbage. The most manly thing you could do is to be honest with God and with people in your life about where you are. I am tired of all the silent sufferers. I've lost five friends in the last two years that have taken their life because they thought no one cared for them. 
and it's not the truth. I'm tired of this notion of this, you gotta man up and grab your bootstraps. No, you need Jesus. And you need other people. Vulnerability, the, the, Latin root word of the, uh, the Latin root of the word vulnerability is vulnus. It literally means wound. We don't wrap our things and let them fester because the entire body will die. You pull that back and let the divine healer heal what only he can. And you may be sitting here going, well, I don't have some crazy Coke story. I don't have some crazy thing like that. I'm just a normal guy. You got something. You're struggling with porn. You're angry about something you've never been able to figure out in your life. You're lonely, you're prideful, you're lustful. Every one of us has something. I spent time in a jail cell, yes, but every single man in this room is walking around on a daily basis in a virtual prison cell made up of their mistakes and their faults and their failures and the lies they believe about themselves. And we become our own jailers, right? We go to the door and we're trying to get out and Satan goes, what about your porn problem? What about this? What about that? Everybody's going to find out. And so we become our own jailers and we shut the door and we stay where it's comfortable because he convinces us that there's nothing but pain and torture and loss out there. My brothers, those are lies. When you become vulnerable, you expose those things, you find out the truth, and when the devil shows back up and he pokes and prods, yeah, they don't hurt anymore. I knew I had a coke problem, but until I admitted it in that jail cell, he had power over me. After I admitted that, he had no more power. After I admitted it to God in the confessional, he had no more power. That men's group has been meeting every Wednesday night for eight years. And it's what spurred us to go around the country and start so many more where men could be real, where they could take off the mask, and where they can come to the mercy of God. People say you can't change, and they're right. You can't. But you could do all things through Christ who strengthens you. We're all beloved sons, but we're also called to be faithful friends of God. Man, I have the, the huge pleasure this morning, and I'm kind of in awe that I got through that story without this thing blowing up and blinking. But guys, I have the extreme pleasure of talking to you for a minute about confession. That's what's happening next, the sacrament of reconciliation. As I travel, I deal with men all the time, and I hear things about confession, nope, nope, don't do that, I'm good. And I'll ask them why, and they'll say something like, I don't want God to know what I've done. <laughs> you're like Adam and Eve. You're hiding in the bushes too, huh? Don't play hide and go seek with God. He wins. Guys, let me tell you what confession is. At some point many years ago, God decided there should be a you. And he thought about you, and he loved you into existence. Knowing everything you were ever going to do in your life. And he still made you. He still chose to love you into existence. God knew what you were going to do. He was there whenever you did what you did. And now he waits for you in this sacrament because he is a loving father. He's not an angry, judgmental police officer. He's not on a cloud somewhere waiting for you to die so he could send you to hell. You know, there's an image that I think these guys are going to pull up that I want to show you, if that's working, that a friend of mine sent me from the TOB Institute. So I'll talk until it comes up, but it's an image of the father and the prodigal son. Every time I look at this, I can't even describe what's on his face. 
It's like excitement. He can't believe it. He sees his son coming, and that story, we can read it to where he's waiting to punish his son because he took his inheritance and blew it. And we can see God like this, like he's standing there disgusted with us because we, we associate however our parents treated us or people in our lives might have treated us. But what does it say? God rushed out to meet him. The father rushed out to meet him and gave him the finest of what he has. This is how God looks when you even get the inclination that you're going to go to confession. He waits for you there. The God of the universe asks his son, Jesus Christ, to put himself in a confessional so that you can go and tell him everything in your life so you don't have to carry it around anymore. It is the people say a personal relationship isn't for Catholics. There is nothing more personal than the sacraments. A loving God who's saying, I know what I've asked you to do is hard. And I know you're going to fail a bunch. But I'm going to be there in persona Christi, in that priest. And gentlemen, get over that. Stop going, well, I don't want Father so-and-so to know what I've done. You're not going to tell him anything he hadn't heard before. And he's not going to remember it. You're going to see Jesus. And Jesus is going to look at you and he's going to go, I know, I know. Tell me about it and let's get through this so you could forget about it and go back to doing what I made you to do. Fellas, God doesn't care about what you've done. He cares about what you have the potential to do. The only time that he cares about you not, is when you don't repent. What he cares about what you've done is when you haven't repented because it has the potential to separate you forever from him and that's what he hates more than anything. People are so afraid. We're men. You're going to your father who loves you. We have to get over this notion that it's punishment or anything else. Go lay down your burdens. Go lay down your pain. Go get your mercy. This is the most important thing you can do today other than receiving the Eucharist yourself. Don't be somebody who doesn't go today. You want to transform what we've been talking about all day long? Get your butt in that confessional and go tell God you're sorry and let him love you like the father that he is. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.